With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The year was 2015. Raise the Horns Radio was the podcast that Jason used to do. And um, in 2015, he did a wonderful, wonderful show called the Samhain Extravaganza. So we dug that one up, and I've got that playing for you because uh, the witches, the whiskey, and the wit, I'm thinking there's probably a lot of whiskey going on right now as we're watching the very slow vote camp from the 2020 presidential election. So forget all about that. Let Jason, let the Witching Hour spellcast take you back because, you know, the Witching Hour is what we make it, when we make it. So um, it's going to be 2015. The Parliament of World's Religions happened in Salt Lake City. Uh, oh my goodness, that that book, The Witches of America. Uh, we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Well, Jason is. And speaking of books, Jason's first book is about ready to happen. The Witch's Atomate from Llewellyn. He's going to talk about that as well. And so um, while we're still kind of sort of in the Samhain spirit, here we go with a flashback, Raise the Horns Radio. And uh, I'm hoping that Jason will be back very soon after we recover from this election. <laughs> um, I'm Pamit. I've been working really hard on the election as well. So I've been taking some time off, but uh, I'll be back. Got some great stuff to talk about uh, coming up soon here on the Witching Hour Spellcast. Hi, welcome to the big show. It's Raise the Horns Radio. I'm Jason Mankey. I am the guy who raises the horns and does all of those things. It's a big show tonight. It's Samhain Halloween season. Got a lot to talk about. We've got a book that's sort of rocking witchcraft in the United States that we're going to talk about called Witches of America. And we're going to talk about some things that have been going on in my life. How are you? It feels like it's been forever since I've done the show. And it's really only been two weeks, but I've just had a really busy two weeks. So because of that, it just feels like it's been a long time. So what has been going on over these last two weeks that's so crazy? Well, let me tell you. How's that? Uh, first thing is my wife and I were elevated to the third degree in Gardnerian witchcraft. It doesn't make me better than anyone. doesn't make me smarter than anyone. However, I will say that elevations and initiations in traditions, not necessarily just the Gardnerian tradition, are life-changing. They're really good things. They change how you look at the world. Something like Gardnerian craft has at least 70 to 80 years of history behind it. Hundreds and thousands of people have gone through the initiations and the elevations over a period of time. So there's a history there that is a part of the work that you do. There's a history there that's a part of an initiation ritual or an elevation ritual. It's something that you can kind of feel which is really nice. Uh, so, yeah, 
third degree elevation, life changing. Never will look at the world the same way again. Of course, I can't tell you anything about it. I can't tell you what we did, how we did things, really what happened. All I could tell you was that I felt different after it was done. I remember after it was done, I couldn't sleep. It felt like Christmas as a kid. You know, when you're a little kid and you're excited about getting all those presents and you can't sleep at night because you're waiting to hear Santa Claus and you're just so excited. That was how it was after I was done. I felt changed. I felt transformed. I felt like a different person. That doesn't happen very often. I think the last time it happened was my initial first degree initiation. So very, very transformative. I've, I've always found it sort of funny, though, that I couldn't sleep after it was done. Usually you can't sleep, you know, before you do something because you're excited about doing it. Slept like a baby the night before. I don't know why people use that expression. Babies don't sleep very well. I, I slept like a college student because those kids know how to sleep. Slept really well the night before, but after it was done very early in the morning or late at night, depending on how you look at things, couldn't sleep. It's life-changing. 48 hours later, after that, I initiated my first Gardnerian witches into the tradition. Obviously, I'd been initiated before, so I knew what that ritual was like. But doing the ritual was different and was also transformative because... When you're going through a ritual, sometimes you don't really know exactly what's going on. You don't know the behind-the-scenes thing. So enacting the ritual, doing the initiating instead of being the initiatee was a very different way to do these things and, and to go through. And I felt like I grew as a person doing that. So I felt that was transformative in a way. But that's just the beginning of the crazy two weeks because... Four hours, literally four hours after doing these initiations and, and getting all of that done and winding down a little bit from it, I got on a plane and went to Salt Lake City for the Parliament of the World's Religions. Now, if you've been on the blogosphere at all the last couple of, I don't know, last week or so, you've probably seen things about the Parliament of the World's Religions. Allegedly 10,000 people. I think it ended up being a little bit less than that, but, you know, a very good-sized group of people, bigger than any pagan festival in the United States, that's for sure. So thousands of people all in Salt Lake and this big convention center for literally hundreds and hundreds of workshops. I have never seen a book of workshops so big and thick before in my entire life huge amount of stuff. So, yeah, lots of people, lots of things. I'm still processing it. I don't know how I feel about it. It was not what I was expecting at all. When I hear Parliament of the World's Religions, in my mind, I see the Dalai Lama. I see him standing next to the Pope, maybe the Eastern Orthodox Pope-like guy, I forget what they call him, maybe uh, a big evangelical leader for the pagans. I guess Selena Fox would be the one I would want up there. I see an Amman from Islam. You know, I see, this is how I think of it, you know, like the leaders of the world's religions all get together. And there were a lot of those kind of people there. 
I mean, Selena Fox was there for the pagans, but it's not something that the Pope went to. The biggest figure who was supposed to be there was the Dalai Lama, and he had to cancel, like, with a week to go. So it really wasn't, like, the biggest leaders of religion all in one roof. And I felt like the Parliament of the World's Religions really swung very hard to New Age groups and to Eastern groups. And you could really feel that presence. There's a big exhibition hall where people are passing out information about their faiths. Some are proselytizing. There were Scientologists there, for example. But for the most part, it's just people being cool, you know, sharing information and stuff. And there were several different pagan groups. There were also a lot of people just selling stuff. Some of it felt sort of junky. Some of it seemed good, but there were a lot of people selling stuff. But when you looked around, it had that very Eastern and sort of New Age bent. And when you're walking around this big exhibition hall, what I didn't see were like lots of Methodists or, you know, here is the big Catholic table. I didn't feel like the conference was necessarily representative of world religion because I felt like small groups had just as much representation as groups with a hundred million followers and maybe that's for the good in some ways but it kind of gives a distorted view of religion in the world. I was talking to a friend there and I think he said half the people who are here are also presenters and so really what you had was a lot of people preaching to the choir. Now, it's a good message, certainly, that you know people were trying to preach. These Almost all the groups there were looking to, I don't want to just say get along with others, because I think it's more than that. They're trying to find common ground with others. How can we treat the world better? How can we treat other people better? How can we find the common ground between our various faiths? Uh, to make the world a better place. And I think that's great. Don't get me wrong. But as I said, it's a lot of preaching to the choir. The people who really need to hear that message, I just didn't feel like they were there at the parliament. It felt like maybe we were all getting along a little too well. Maybe it would have been good to have some of those far right voices there. Not that I want to hear their message, but I want them to hear the message other people are sharing. I want them to try to be more inclusive. I want them to know that there are other ways and that how they look at things is not always the right way to look at things. Yeah, I wanted less choir, <laughs> you know, more people from outside the choir. Very big pagan presence, though, at the Parliament of World Religions. Very, very big pagan presence. Uh, something I was proud of to some degree, uh, Don Lewis, who does, helps with witch school, I think he does witch school, and he was there, and he was a part of everything, I got my picture taken with him, got to talk to him for two seconds, I was only there for 36 hours, so it was very in and out, and I was there for Pathios, since I'm an employee of Pathios, I had to hang out with my bosses and see all of them, uh, Selena Fox was there, I went by the circle information stand, but I never really got to see Selena, which was kind of a bummer. Lots of other groups. I know Diana Paxson was there. Never really saw her, though, or her table. I saw a lot of UU Pagans, which was really nice, and 
I can't say that I was surprised. They're the kind of people I expect there who do a lot of interfaith work, certainly more than a lot of witches I know. Not that the witches are doing bad things, they just have other priorities sometimes. So, you know, an interesting conference, still processing, still not exactly sure how I feel about it. One of the things about it, I read a lot of stuff online. A lot of the people who went were bloggers, and they would write about it. Heather Green from The Wild Hunt, she was there. Had a lovely time with Heather. Went out, had some drinks with her on the one night I was there, which was pretty cool. She and I, as the editor of Pathos Pagan, she is the editor of The Wild Hunt. We sometimes go through things that other people don't experience. So it's nice to know someone else out there sort of walks in your shoes. And I think Heather and I sort of feel that way about each other. So it was kind of cool hanging out with her. And she wrote about it on The Wild Hunt. But one place that you didn't hear about the Parliament of the World's Religions was in the mainstream media. There was no story on 60 Minutes or the Evening News. I didn't read anything about it on the Huffington Post or the Daily Beast or the CNN.com or whatever news sites I tend to usually read. So that was disappointing because I don't think that greater message of tolerance and acceptance that the parliament is trying to preach is getting out there unless it gets picked up by more mainstream sources. And again, it's sort of that preaching to the choir thing that I alluded to a little bit before. So yeah, that's that's been my last two weeks. Oh, one other great thing. Um, when I got home, I found the first printed version of my Llewellyn book, The Witch's Athame, which is going to be out in early January, waiting for me. wasn't the final version or anything, but I was doing all the corrections. So I had to do corrections and look through the book where the editor would go, what do you mean here? What the hell is this? Can you write better? Actually, I didn't have to do a whole lot, but I had to do, I think, 15 or 16 things or whatever. But it's pretty exciting to have a book out, and to know that I'm going to have a book out in January is one of the coolest things to ever happen to me. I've been waiting my whole life to write a book. I'm only 20 years behind schedule. But, yeah, I've got a book coming out, and you can go to Amazon, and you can type in Jason Mankey, The Witch's Athame, and there it is. It's this cool cover of a pumpkin been the wallpaper on my computer for several months just because I'm so excited and nerded out by it all. Yeah, so book coming out, got to do the final corrections for the book. So that was sort of the topper of those crazy ah, two weeks. Ah, deep breath, sigh. And now I'm here doing the radio show right before Samhain and Halloween. You know, Samhain, Halloween time, it's a great time or a bad time, depending on how you look at it, for newspapers to write about us, to write about witches, to write about pagans. Some of the articles are positive. A lot of the articles are really bad. A lot of publishers of books use this period of time to release books with witches in the title because they're going to get a little extra press because people want to read about witches in October. So there have been two books that have come out in the last two weeks that have been looked at a lot by the mainstream press. Uh, one of them is called Witches, and it's a book about Salem, Massachusetts, and what happened there back, wow, um, 300 and some odd years ago. The second one is called Witches 
of America, and that's the one I want to talk about for a few minutes, Witches of America is not a trip through time. It's a trip through contemporary paganism. Looking at the title, it says Witches of America, so you think that the book would be about witches. I don't really think the book is about witches at all. Uh, it's a, by a writer named Alex Marsh. She uh, did a movie called American Mystic that came, I think came out in 2008 or something like that. And it had Morpheus Ravenna in it, who, you know, a lot of pagans know who she is. I would say she's kind of a pagan rock star type. Anyway, she's in a lot of the book. But it's this, it's this writer, Alex Marr. Uh, it's her journey. Uh, sort of through witchcraft and through pagan things. She goes to PSG, Pagan Spirit Gathering, which is put on by Circle Sanctuary. She goes to Pantheacon a couple of times, which is a big pagan festival out here on the West Coast. Uh, so she goes to things. She hangs out with an OTO group in New Orleans. She does some fairy training, and she hangs out a lot with Morpheus. Actually, one of the things about the book, if, if you read it, you almost feel like she's deeply in love with Morpheus. I mean, it talks over and over about how pretty Morpheus is, and uh, it was a little—it was a little nauseating uh, in places. But a lot of witches are really angry about this book for various reasons. There are some people who say that Alex Marr violated some trust by talking about things, and there's certainly moments in this book where you're reading it and going. Would the person who said this want it printed for thousands of people to read? Was this email allowed to be reprinted? Did she ask, did Alex, the author, ask permission of the person she was quoting, you know, if she could do this? It's it's a strange book. One of the things that I really didn't like about it, and I think I'm a little different in some of the other critiques, was for a book called Witches of America... There were hardly any witches of America in the book. The OTO is not a witchcraft tradition. And there are even people in the OTO who would say, I'm not a pagan. Um, Morpheus's um, Cora group, the uh, Morrigan group that she's a part of, I don't think that's a witchcraft tradition. Certainly on their webpage, it never says, we are witches of the Morrigan. So to me, that doesn't feel like a witchcraft tradition. And then the third group that Alex profiles is called is fairy tradition, which is a witchcraft tradition, but it's a smaller witchcraft tradition. Certainly its influence on American paganism has been large. Starhawk is somebody uh, who was initiated as a fairy. Morpheus was initiated as a fairy. Teethorn Coil was initiated into the fairy tradition. But it is not close to being the largest witchcraft tradition. And in some places, it barely exists because it's predominantly something that you find on the West Coast. And all through the book, Alex Marr just kind of sneers at eclectic Wicca, sneers at other forms of Wicca, though the book never really talks about her going to those rituals. There is an all-women's all ritual that she goes to, which she kind of mocks in a way, but there's nothing else about going to eclectic Wiccan rituals. And, you know, as somebody who does a lot of eclectic Wiccan rituals, to see my beliefs, uh, a tradition that I'm a part of, I mean, I wouldn't be here today without eclectic Wicca, to see it sort of 
sneered at really pissed me off, to be honest. But it's been like that. It's not how you act. And there's also another problem with the book. It's paganism. You know, it's navel-gazing paganism. It's paganism where I'm a seeker. I can only talk to the famous pagans at the top. I don't want to be anywhere else. I only want to be around the prettiest pagans in the whole world. I'm Alex Marr. And it really comes across that way. There are moments in the book where uh, I think some, some bloggers have written about it as body shaming. And Alex is, I think, a pretty young woman. And anyone who does not meet her standards of beauty is sort of mocked a little bit. And that's really not necessary. That's not what we do as a community. It's not how we act. You know, all shapes are shapes of the goddess. All women are beautiful women. All men are beautiful men. And somewhere Alex lost that along the way for damn sure. So there's that part of the book, which is really unsettling. You know, just there were so many things about it that I, I just didn't like. And it sucks to have to talk about it at Halloween time because this should be, you know, my favorite time of year. It's the big pagan time of year. But instead, this book has really brought out a lot of responses from the pagan community and a, and a lot of anger, I think. I think there are people who are very angry at this book. Because now, this woman, because she went through a mainstream publisher and her book is reviewed in the New York Times, somebody who's not a witch is going to be the type of person who is interviewed about witchcraft as an expert. So, Alex... Tell me about witchcraft. What the hell? You know, how about asking a witch about witchcraft? How about asking Christopher Penzak about witchcraft? How about asking Starhawk about witchcraft? Lots of people that you could ask about witchcraft. Not somebody who dabbled with it for a couple of months and then walked away. People who have done it for a lifetime. And I think that's the real danger of a book like this. You know, there's been some backlash against the people who are profiled in the book. You know, how did they let this writer get so close to them? And I don't blame them. I mean, the, when you read the book, you can tell that these people were trying very hard to vet Mar. You know, it's like, I know you're a writer. That's not why you're doing this, right? You're not just doing this to get a story about witchcraft and say shit about us. You're, you're doing this because, you know, this is... Um, an honest thing that you want to explore. This is something that comes from inside of you. It's not just exploitive. So that's there. And I think those people, you know, we're trying to do the right thing. So don't let anyone blame the people profiled in the book. I mean, this is all on Mar. I think we're a very trusting group of people. I think the witchcraft and pagan communities have always been pretty open to others. I think we like sharing our stories and we like, you know, sharing our craft and what we do. It's just a shame when these kind of things arise and this is how our craft is shared. I don't know. John Beckett wrote a good review. Reed over at Gods of Radicals wrote a pretty good review. I wrote a good review of it at Raise the Horns. I think we all touch on different things that we didn't like about the book. One of the things, too, I'll just add a little extra. When a person who is not an occultist writes a book about the occult or witchcraft or paganism or whatever, 
they're apt to say dumb things because they don't have the background in it. They don't know really what they're talking about. And there are a few instances in in Mars' book where she does that. You know, she talks about the Athame once. And Gerald Gardner, the first modern public witch, he certainly liked knives when, you know, as a man. He wrote a book about a Malaysian knife long before he was a witch. And she's like, well, maybe this is why. It's it, The quote is, it's not much of a leap from the ritual knife of Gerald's days in Borneo to the Athame. Well, no. If you look through the history of ceremonial magic, people use knives and swords. It's in the damn books. You know, don't don't put it on Gerald when it's in the Key of Solomon. It's right there, pretty much from the beginning of the Western magical tradition. So, no. Um, there's another quote that I didn't like. Back in the early 90s, before Wicca had been rebranded online as a friendly, earth-loving form of spirituality, oh yes, in the early 90s, when I got involved, because by then that had already happened. I mean, the Spiral Dance came out in 1979. Wicca, Guide for the Solitary Practitioner by Scott Cunningham, came out in 1989. We, it had already been rebranded. It had been rebranded as a friendly, earth-loving form of spirituality since the 1970s. Anybody who knows anything about pagan history can tell you that. It had been going that way for a long time. Certainly in the 50s and 60s and parts of the early 70s when there weren't printed rituals, there really weren't books about paganism or witchcraft out there. Yeah, it was probably a lot more of a mystery tradition. The only way to get a hold of rituals was to be an initiate of something like Garnerian craft or Alexandrian or whatever else. But by the 70s, that had changed. The pagan festival scene had already started. Their pagan recordings had started. Uh, it was becoming something else. There were pagan magazines. Yeah, and a lot of it was friendly, earth-loving spirituality. So, ugh. I, I don't like revisionist history. I take my, my pagan and my Wiccan history very, very seriously. And to see it not to see it not articulated accurately and properly bugs me. Bugs me. You know, parts of the book when she's at Pantheacon and ignoring everyone else at Pantheacon except for a couple of you know so, you know BNPs. I hate that title, and I don't think I've ever met somebody that most people consider a BNP who is an asshole. I mean, they're all, everybody in our community is generally pretty nice. Um, but the thing about Mara is she didn't want to talk to anybody. She only wanted to sit at the table with the people that she thought were really were in charge, were the biggest. There's a, there's a point in her book, and this is just, I mean, this is sour grapes on my part, and I'll admit it, but she's talking about, I was there with the three best high priestesses on the West Coast or some other shit like that. And I'm thinking to myself while I'm reading it, sitting next to my wife, well, no, <laughs> the best high priestess on the West Coast is right here, sitting next to me, my freaking wife, my beautiful wife, Ari. That is how I feel about it. And, you know, you can't say who the best high priestess is anyways. It's all, it's all opinion. You know, I've been to great rituals with unknown people. I've been to horrible rituals hosted by famous people. You never, you never really know. So yeah, do I recommend picking up Alex Mar, Alex Mar's 
witches of America? Obviously not. <laughs> I, I don't think that it's something that you probably need to read. But if you're curious, I mean, go ahead. One of the things about being in our community is if you want to have an opinion on something, it's best that you read it before forming an opinion about it. So if you want to stay up on everything, maybe you do have to read it. So, yeah, those were my weeks. That's my book review. And I just publicly said that my wife is the greatest high priestess on the West Coast. <sighs> I'm, I'm going to get brownie points, maybe, for some of that. And anti-brownie points for the other half of it. So, yeah, Samhain Halloween season, now that half the show's over. Isn't it a great time to be a witch? I mean, you go out to the store, everything's witchy. Everybody, you can put, there's a sign on my house that says, Witches Welcome. That's something that would never be on my house most of the rest of the year. My 94-year-old neighbor doesn't need to know what we do in the ritual room or, you know, what kind of religion we practice. But I can say it all loudly and proudly this time of year because it's Halloween Samhain season. Every once in a while, I run into people who lament the commercialization of Samhain. And I don't get it because Samhain is not Halloween. Halloween is not Samhain. To me, they've always been two very separate, very different holidays. Halloween is a holiday I've celebrated since I was three or four. I think my first Halloween costume was Frankenstein with one of those old plastic masks with the rubber band around it. And, you know, so you, everyone can see the back of your head. But it looked like Boris Karloff, Frankenstein, because I loved monster movies even when I was four. And I think my dad had to carry me basically through the neighborhood while I got candy. But yeah, that was my first Halloween. Second Halloween, Ace Fraley of Kiss. My brother, Peter Chris, the drummer of Kiss. That tells you how old I am. Also very cool. Uh, but yeah, Halloween, big time thing. Favorite holiday, you know, as a kid. One of the best. Only bad only bad part of Halloween were those gross peanut butter candies and the orange and black wrappers. Always hated them. And Necco wafers. Never got into Necco wafers. That's the kind of stuff that would be in your in your candy bag until after Thanksgiving. <laughs> it was just that bad. But, I mean, that was long before I'd ever heard the word Samhain. I was celebrating Halloween. I was carving jack-o'-lanterns, dressing up, going trick-or-treating, uh, maybe going to a Halloween party. Especially by junior high, we'd sort of transition to Halloween parties where you could make out with girls. Didn't do that nearly as much as I should have, but got to do it a few times. But, yeah, Halloween, not Samhain. Didn't really discover Samhain until I was a witch, which was... 20-some years ago. Didn't call it Sam Samhain. Somehow knew better. But Samhain, yeah, that was, you know, the, the spiritual and religious side to what was going on. It was completely different from my experience with Halloween. And so, yeah, I've always looked at them as different. They certainly have common origin points. Samhain was a very real celebration in Irish Celtic Ireland, obviously, I, you know, the Irish Celts were the people who celebrated Samhain. And in Irish mythology, you'll see the word 
Samhain. We don't know a whole lot about how the ancient Celts celebrated Samhain. Samhain is not mentioned in other parts of the Celtic world. It's really only mentioned in Ireland. So was it a kind of a pan-Celtic universal festival or something that only happened in Ireland? No one is really sure. So what do we really know about Samhain? That's the big question. It's hard to say. The people in Wales did celebrate a holiday on the 31st of October called, the, I'm going to say it wrong, called Calengafe, the first day of winter, but they didn't really attach a lot of significance to it. It's possible that it meant more. It just was never really written about. But it's only really in Ireland that you get a lot of stories about Samhain. Samhain is often thought to translate as summer's end, but there's no clear consensus on whether or not that's actually the case. In a 10th century book known as the Tokmark Emir, the story's heroine Emer, mentions Samhain as the time, quote, when the summer goes to its rest. So even if Samhain doesn't necessarily literally mean summer's end, it might have really been thought of that way. Today on the Wheel of the Year, we look at the eight holidays. You know, we have the equinoxes and the solstices too, but the Celts probably didn't celebrate all eight of those. They certainly didn't celebrate the equinoxes. So, and they didn't celebrate Yule, as far as we know. There's a long tradition in Ireland, though, of celebrating the summer solstice. So maybe they did five, or maybe it was added later. But Samhain could very well have been kind of the beginning of winter. Certainly there were things going on which are related to winter. It's the end of the agricultural cycle. It's the, you know, you're culling the herds, killing lots of cattle and things. So, yeah, there are wintry things going on. And the weather's starting to turn. It's starting to get colder. The nights are noticeably longer. One of the things about Samhain is that medieval, medieval Irish literature is full of references to the day. When we think of Samhain today, we think of October 31st. From, you know, sun up uh, to midnight or at least the following morning on November 1st. But the Celts in Ireland looked at time in a different way. So Samhain actually started when the sun went down on the 30th and then lasted into the 31st. So it was it was different. Um, it wasn't quite like we celebrate it. So they were kind of celebrating it a week early. Or, I mean, not a week early, but a day early. There were some things that went on at Samhain in a lot of the stories, and one of them was that tribal assemblies were held. It's when laws were made, and people would come together, and they would decide on how things were going to be for the year. Maybe it was the first time they'd been together in a while. One of the things about having all of the harvest done and not really worrying about some of those other things is, now you have time to make laws. Now you have time to do some of these other things, which you didn't have time before. And usually in the medieval stories, when these groups would gather, just, you know, bad things would happen. Usually supernatural forces would show up, spirits, monsters, fairies, and the group of people would get together and maybe a royal capital was attacked. There were there was physical destruction and evil spells. 
there were divine female figures who were wooed by human males. I wonder who's telling those stories. Probably human dudes. <laughs> um, supernatural beings fought. And so th those are the kind of things that go on in the stories. Uh, we usually think of Samhain, and we, one of the things that many of us say is the veil between the worlds is thin. But to the Irish Celt, it really wasn't a holiday necessarily about death and dying and reuniting with those who had gone before. It was certainly a time when supernatural things occurred. And I would say that the one thing that modern-day Samhain and Halloween celebrations have in common, the original Samhain celebration, is kind of this supernatural feeling. And a lot of a lot of people have a sense of dread around Halloween. Not so much witches, but people in the overculture. They always think something bad is going to happen. That's what makes movies like Halloween fun with Michael Myers. Because you think that, oh yeah, this is going to happen around Halloween. So they had that ancient uh, feeling of dread. One of the things that people would do when they were scared of outside forces is they often built large bonfires. One of the best ways to keep fairies away is to build a large fire. Things can't get you if there's a little extra bit of light and nobody likes fire um, unless it's just keeping you warm. But you're always scared about getting burned. So they would burn big fires to keep the bad forces at bay and to keep it away. So that the idea that there were evil, malevolent forces out on Samhain night might be the only thing that we can really say for sure happened um, at ancient Samhain's. Fires are, are a logical extension of that, and there were uh, mentions of fires by the 1500s. And that seems relatively late, but a lot of customs weren't written down until about then, or at least we don't have copies of them. So it's not necessarily out of bounds. I think that's something that's probably really there, and it's something that's really, really old. One of the things that we often think about at Samhain is that, well, it's a harvest festival. You know, Samhain is a harvest festival. It's the last great harvest festival. Everything's done. But in none of the mythologies about Samhain, do you see it listed as a, as a harvest festival? No one really talks about that in the mythology. It's just something that's kind of inferred. Certainly, if large groups of people were getting together for Samhain and feasting and making laws, it would go it would go to say that they probably did something that looks like a Thanksgiving or a big feast, which could be like a harvest ritual sort of thing, but it's not something that's explicitly then. Samhain as the Celtic feast of the dead was not an idea that was expressed until the end of the 19th century. And it was suggested by Sir James Fraser, uh, who wrote a series of books called The Golden Bough. The actual Golden Bough is several books long. There is a condensed version, which most of us own today, that's a lot shorter. But he was one of the first people to say that it was a feast of the dead. And no one had ever really said that before. And Fraser's suggestion comes from Samhain's proximity to two Christian holidays, All Saints and All Souls Days. Um, we tend to think of pagan holidays as 
thinly or Christian holidays as thinly veiled pagan holidays. But in the case of All Saints and All Souls and Samhain and Halloween, it's really, really difficult to tell because they were established several centuries before Ireland converted to Christianity. And just because people were doing something in Ireland does not mean that they were doing it in the rest of pagan Europe. And both of those holidays, Saints and Souls, were originally celebrated in May and then later moved to November. And they weren't moved to November 1st and 2nd until the year 1006. So getting from Samhain to All Souls Night is not a straight line. There's sort of a missing piece. However, it does seem that in Ireland and perhaps also in parts of Scotland and Wales, there were memories of ancient Samhain still going on, that there were hints of things. The the Scots ate a Samhain cake, has the word Samhain in it um, at Halloween time, perhaps something linking them back to that ancient celebration. Certainly the idea of dark forces moving around, which is now incorporated into Halloween, came directly from Samhain. You know, one of the things about Samhain is that it's not Halloween, and Halloween is not Samhain. They're really different holidays. Halloween is a big sort of secular celebration of all things fall and all things scary. And Samhain is something that we do personally with a coven or by ourselves. It's a reflection on what's been the last year. It's a reflection on the people that we've lost. It's a time to reconnect with our ancestors and to sort of touch those who we've lost at least one more time that particular time of year at Samhain. So, yeah, I've always looked at them as very different. You'll run into people every once in a while who talk about the commercialization of Samhain. And I, that's not something I believe because Halloween is not Samhain and Samhain is not Halloween. They're different holidays with a common origin point in the very, very distant past. But things change and things progress. Um, so, yeah, you can't really commercialize Samhain. It, it's most likely that Samhain was not celebrated for hundreds, if not over 1,500 years. After Ireland was Christianized, you know, Samhain celebrations sort of stopped. It's possible there was some sort of celebration that continued, but any sort of relation to pagan gods and goddesses was most likely removed from the celebration because the church would punish those who did honor those gods and goddesses. And, yeah, so we didn't really celebrate Samhain again until we unearthed it again when modern paganism was established in the 19th and 20th centuries, and especially when witchcraft, you know, became a religion again, a very viable modern religion in the 1940s and 1950s. So, yeah, we've never really commercialized Samhain. One of the things about Halloween time, though, is, you know, Halloween has a very, I don't know, crazy history. It's sort of become the repository of traditions, especially in the United States, that 
didn't find a home anywhere else. If, if you're someone who's really into the history of holidays, it's funny to me that Halloween, New Year's, and Christmas all share a lot of similar things. And a lot of the traditions that we associate with each holiday in 2015 really weren't put there until relatively recently. Uh, Halloween is no exception. Halloween is something that really caught fire in the 19th century. All Hallows had been celebrated in Ireland and England and Wales and Scotland for hundreds of years. But in the 19th century in America is really when it kind of started and really became a big thing. In England, the holiday that was always more important was Guy Fawkes Day. And if you've seen V for Vendetta, you're familiar with Guy Fawkes Day. Remember, remember, this is the 5th of September, the gunpowder treason and plot. That was their big holiday with bonfires and masks and wearing those. When the Scots came to the United States, Halloween became a holiday for Scottish nationalism. It's really funny if you go and look at old postcards of um, early 20th century, late 19th century, you'll see Christmas postcards that say Old Lang Syne on them. You'll see leprechauns on them. It really was a day for Scottish national pride. Not so much witches and things. A lot of fall motifs still, but it was a day for, for Scottish pride, kind of like St. Patrick's Day is a day for alleged Irish pride, mostly it's just a kind of an excuse to go drinking a lot, but yeah, alleged Irish pride. And really that's what Halloween was. Um, Halloween in the United States really took off after World War II. Before then, it was a holiday where things happened. It was a holiday for parties and dressing up, but kids didn't really go trick-or-treating so much. And in a lot of places, it was a day when kids went out and did bad things. There used to be a lot of vandalism in the early 20th century associated with Halloween. It was only after World War II in the early 40s when trick-or-treating really became an established thing. Uh, the, the term trick-or-treat doesn't show up until the late 40s where it shows up in a magazine where a lady, is, where a lady writes about inviting kids in for tricks so that they do not... or invites kids in for treats so they do not play tricks on her or her property. And it sort of took off from there. There's a really long history of dressing up and asking for things in October, November, December, even at Easter time. Any sort of major Christian holiday usually had people begging for alms, begging the poor would beg and ask for things. Rich people would give uh, people below them in station and financial situations, gifts. Um, when we think of wassailing at Christmas, here we go, wassailing among the leaves so green. Uh, and they would go door to door and ask for treats. That was really a form of trick-or-treating. Uh, it was a custom that people wanted to celebrate, but they really weren't sure where to put it in our modern calendar of holidays. So eventually it kind of got uh, stuck with Halloween, even though it had been practiced in other places in New York City up until the 1930s. This is fascinating. Kids would often dress up and go door to door to local businesses that, that they and their families patronized throughout the year and ask for free things and ask for gifts. 
you know, reward me for being a local customer. And they did it while dressing up in costume. It was a very early form of trick-or-treating. And it happened on Thanksgiving. And only due to the popularity of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade was that custom moved to Halloween. It's fascinating how our traditions feel like they're hundreds and thousands of years old when some of them are of relatively recent vintage. One of the traditions that I often think about the most at Halloween is, of course, the tradition of the jack-o'-lantern. And the jack-o'-lantern is one of those things that there's been some real debate, I guess, among scholars, like where the jack-o'-lantern really came from. And, you know, when some of the earliest books I read on the history of holidays said that the Irish used to take turnips or beets, carve them out, and put a candle in them. And that was where the jack-o'-lantern came from. And it was said to represent a soul in purgatory. But there are no remains of any of those things, really. There was a jack-o'-lantern made from a turnip that turned up last year, dating from the 19th century. But a lot of people now think that the jack-o'-lantern is really an American custom because pumpkins did not exist in Europe. Pumpkin is a new world squash. So nobody was going to have a jack-o'-lantern until somebody in the United States made one from a pumpkin, really. Um, so we don't know. There is the legend of the jack-o'-things and the jack-of-the-tails or the jack-of-things. In Elizabethan England, carnival goers used to take turns throwing objects at a jack-o'-lent, said to resemble a scarecrow on Ash Wednesday. It may have had some sort of vegetable for its head. And that's a reference to Jack of the Tales, a trickster figure who was deemed too wicked even for hell. One of the parts of the Jack of the Tales myth is that the devil threw him a lit coal when he was kicked out of hell, and that Jack threw it in a hollowed-out turnip, and then Jack wandered the earth until the Christian Judgment Day. But because he's carrying the lit coal in the hollowed-out turnip, you could see it. And some people really thought that might be the origin of the jack-o'-lantern, because it's similar, hollowed-out vegetable, something glowing in it. Eventually, Jack with the lantern became Jack-o'-lantern, and it served as a shorthand for mystical or devilish lights. And there's a long history of unexplained lights in places, in, in England and Scotland and Ireland, but also, of course, in the United States. Uh, sometimes it's swamp gas or whatever, but when people would see those strange lights, they thought it was Jack with the lantern or Jack O'Lantern. Then the theory goes is that perhaps Irish or Scottish immigrants started carving pumpkins on Halloween, and the tradition spread from there. It's a great tradition, though. I, there are a few things that I think of more at Halloween than the pumpkin. It's something that I really, really think about, and it's sort of the main symbol for Halloween. I love talking about Halloween stuff. But before we go, and I think we've got 10 minutes of show left as I ramble on about holidays. Boy, it's so much fun. Is Samhain rituals. And over the last couple of years, 
I've been really proud of the rituals that I've been able to do for Samhain. I've been really proud of some of the liturgy I've been able to write for Samhain. I love capturing that witchy vibe. and not, There's no better time of year to capture the sort of witchiness of a Sabbath than Samhain. It's, it's really the best. You know, I've kind of had a mixed experience with Samhain when I was younger and starting out on the pagan path. Everyone always thought of me as the fun guy, not the serious ritual guy. Jason's rituals were fun, so he was great to have write the Beltane ritual. We don't want him doing anything at Samhain. And eventually I was like, I can do serious things. I can be a part of something. And one of my friends said, okay, I'm going to give you the serious part. I'm going to have you be the door between the living and the dead. I'm going to have you open the portal to the Summerlands when the veil between the worlds is thin. And I was like, okay. Um, so I did that. I think I accomplished it in rituals. A really cool ritual because it was outdoors in the woods at midnight. You know, the only light around was the moon, the stars, and whatever candles we had burning. Thankfully, the rangers of the park didn't come through and bother us. The next year... The people I was working with, uh, they were my HP and HPS and guard, but they were people I'd done eclectic ritual with for a very long time, and they did half the ritual, and they had my wife and I do the other half of the ritual. And again, my job was to keep that portal open between the living and the dead and try to facilitate that reunion between those of us in this world and those in the other. And I mention this because... That idea has become really central to a lot of the Samhain rituals that I've written since then. Um, it's been about reunion. It's about crossing over the veil or inviting those who have crossed over to come back to us. Um, and I always tend to get stuck with doing that role, and I'm kind of used to it. And, you know, you feel when you're doing that role, uh, you feel... The Ferrars call him the Dread Lord of Shadows in the Witch's Bible. And I've always liked that thing. He's he's the god of death. You know, the god with one foot in the living and one foot in the realm of death. He's the one who lets souls back to this world. He welcomes those who have left our world. You know, he's really the, the god of death while the goddess is the goddess of life. And it's a figure that I feel really close to now. I don't want to say that I've become like morbidly fascinated with death or anything, but it's a part of the cycle. We're all we're all going to die probably. Though with my wife's income and future advances in science, couldn't be around here for quite a while. But yeah, so we're all gonna die, and you know it's part of being. It's part of acceptance. And at Samhain, when I'm doing these rituals, you know, I can feel him on my shoulder. You know, we usually draw down the god, but it's, I can feel him touching me, which is nice and it's comforting. Last year, did too many Samhain rituals. I was a part of three or four Samhain rituals. And one of the rituals that I did was for my friend Angus McMahon, who's been a guest on this show. And some of you out there know Angus. Uh, he's great. He wrote this ritual where... The goddess kills the god as a sacrifice at Samhain. He asked one of our friends to be the god. My friend, Our friend had to back out. He looked at me and he goes, Jason, I really need you to do this. 
I know you have a lot on your plate right now, but would you please sacrifice all of your football uh, for local rituals? And I said, for you, Angus, I'll do it. And so we drew down the we drew down the god and the goddess, and then she, she killed me. And that was an experience because I had his power floating through me, and then I knew I was gonna die. <laughs> and the end of the ritual ends with me dead. And because Angus and his group Community Seed have access to giant stages and budgets, we did everything on a stage in the middle of a Masonic Hall. And at the end of the ritual, after I died, I had to crawl into the stage in the middle of the hall and stay there until everyone left the ritual. And I remember sitting sitting there thinking to myself, everyone is happy and laughing and leaving and I'm dead. I'm the horned god and I'm dead. Why are they happy? They should all be crying for me. It's a very, very strange and unsettling experience. The ritual that I had done a few weeks before, or a week before that, and I'd done it at that community seed group before, was my ritual of inviting the dead back over. And it involved drawing down the goddess as the goddess of death. And it involved me drawing down the god and opening the portal between the worlds. And one of the things about that ritual is I wrote some great liturgy. And I'm going to read a little bit of it because this really encapsulates my Samhain experience. I was hoping my wife would be home in time to read this to you because it sounds much better coming from her. But this is the charge of the goddess of death. Now listen to the words of the great mother, the lady of death, who was once called Diana, Hecate, Kali, Ariadne, Persephone, and by many other names. I am she who is feared, yet she who would bring comfort. I am the end of all things and the beginning of all else. I would give you peace, freedom, and reunion with those who have gone before you. My gifts are rarely sought, yet freely I offer them. I am she who embraces every woman and every man. None shall escape my touch, but fear it not. For I hold the cauldron of life within my hands, the power of immortality for all those that would be reborn in your world. I am fear, yet I am the balance in this world without end. Without me, thou would not live again. I am the end of suffering, the release from all pain. I gather the spirits who have left your world and offer them a place in it once more. I am the mystery of the end and the wonder of beginnings. And now you who seek to know me know that your seeking and yearning will avail you not unless you know the mystery. For if that which you seek you find not within yourself, you will never find it without. For behold, I have been with you from the beginning, and I am that which is attained at the end of desire. Blessed be. I get chills when my wife reads that. My scratchy voice does not do it justice, though I, I hope that other people feel the power in that little bit that we feel when she reads it. It's been a part of all of our sound rituals ever since. And parts of it, of course, were stolen directly from Doreen Valiente's Charge of the Goddess, especially the last paragraph 
of it. But really, uh, really like that piece. One other thing, though, is I had to write a companion to it because how can you not write a companion to it? I can't give my wife all the best lines. So I wrote The Charge of the God of Death. It's not as good, but still it's okay. I thought I will, uh, I'll read a little bit of that for you now, too. I stand at the end of all things, and the beginning of all that is new. I take, and I give. I am the spark of life, and he who extinguishes all. I stand with you in this journey, and will walk with you upon the next. I am he who gives release from pain, and brings to you all that is pleasurable. My touch is feared, yet my hand is readily grasped. I rend, I rip, I tear, I love, I lift, I embrace. I am the God of death. Yeah, I thought that would be like the best thing to go out on tonight, huh? A really a positive moment. Um, one thing I love about Samhain and being a witch and being a pagan is the honesty that we have this time of year that I don't think other groups do, other religious things do. Uh, people don't talk about death. They don't acknowledge death. They go to a cemetery, you bury somebody, you watch somebody cremated, and then you move on with your life. And it's not like that. You don't just bury somebody and forget them. They're always there. They're always a part of you. Their spirit is always hanging around. The relationship that you have with someone uh, doesn't end just because they're dead. And I think paganism has this very healthy relationship with death. I think that it's healthy to celebrate death every year. I think it's healthy to remember our ancestors, to remember those who came before, to remember those we love and loved and continue to love. And I think that Samhain gives us that opportunity. And you just don't see it in other religions like you do in ours so i love that about this time of year and i love that i get to experience that and i hope you get to experience that too so i wish you a very blessed Samhain i i hope that those of you looking for reunion with lost loved ones find it i wish you a happy halloween i hope that if you get to go trick-or-treating or dress up or just go on a long night of drinking or whatever it is i hope it's fun and I hope you have a good time so blessed Samhain and happy Halloween. Raise the Horns Radio, as always. Check Raise the Horns out online. It's a blog. It's a great blog. I write it. It's fun. And I also edit Pathios Pagan. So come and visit us there. We'd love to see you and love to have you around. Happy Halloween. Blessed Samhain. We'll see you in two weeks. This is Raise the Horns. I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.